Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me. Always great to have you. I'm very excited to have Joe Pompeo with me. He is a correspondent at Vanity Fair, where he covers the media industry. He has worked at Politico and the New York Observer, and has written for the New York Times, Bloomberg Business Week, and the Columbia Journalism Review. His book, on sale on September 13th, is called Blood and Ink, The Scandalous Jazz Age Double Murder That Hooked America on True Crime. Thanks so much for coming on. Great to have you. And thanks for having me. Yes. So this is a, a mostly forgotten murder mystery, as you state in your book. How did you learn about it? When I had the idea to do a book like this, which is to say some sort of you know dark historical uh, murder mystery, I really didn't know where to... I mean, I love books like this. I didn't know where to find a story of, of my own. So I went back to a, a former professor of mine from the Columbia Journalism School, which I'd, where I'd gone to graduate school uh, in the, mid, the mid-aughts. Her name was Andy Tucker, and when I was when I was at Columbia in graduate school, she had taught uh, some history courses. I took one of her history lectures about the history of journalism, and you know, in this course, we 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 studied these sensational newspaper crimes of of the nineteenth century, like the murder of Helen Jewett, uh, the Mary Rogers mystery, th- things like that. Both of which there are great books about, and I was really it really sort of you know hooked me on on these sorts of stories and these sorts of crimes. So when I wanted to do a book, I went back to her and I just wanted to like pick her brain. And, and we just started talking about, you know, different murders from, from the past, particularly from the 19th century, early 20th century. And at one point she mentioned the Hall Mills murders, uh, the Hall Mills case. And I thought that had a nice ring to it on its own, but then she mentioned it, it took place in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I'm, I'm from, New, from New Jersey. I'd gone to Rutgers or I'd lived in New Brunswick for four years. So immediately I was, I was very interested and then topically, you know, it was about this this 
this minister and the squire singer is having an affair with. Everything was was just very uh, appealing to me about the sound of this. And during the same conversation uh, with with Andy Tucker, we were also talking about separately uh, the tabloids in the 1920s and how just utterly outrageous they were. So that was, you know, of the time period, uh, you know, when this when the Hull Mills murders took place. So these two things just immediately, I, I left this this meeting with her with this impression that there was something there with these two kind of arcs, the Hall Mills murders and 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 the the creation of the tabloids in in 1920s New York and and kind of how those stories intersected. Right, right. And it's a really complicated case. A lot of leads, a lot of suspects. Mm-hmm. So your book begins with a gruesome discovery made on the morning of September 16th, 1922, by a young couple. What did they find and how did they react to what they found? Yeah. And the first caveat I want to say, I, I, you know, I, we call their, in the historical record, they're referred to as a couple. This is 1922. Um, so the standards were somewhat different. It wouldn't have been as shocking to people then that a 15-year-old girl was running around with a 23-year-old young man. But obviously by modern standards, that is, that is not okay and, and very inappropriate. But they yep, were yeah. uh, this, this, this young uh, these two young people that were romantically linked, their names were Pearl Bomber and Ray Schneider. Uh, Schneider was kind of a, a troublesome, no good sort of young man. He was still married at the time. And and Pearl, just for context, uh, came from kind of a, a broken family, kind of had like a tough childhood. She was she was a little bit of a, a delinquent. But these so these are the two young people that found the bodies. And when they came upon the scene, they were out walking on the outskirts of New Brunswick, New Jersey, the city where this where this crime takes place. And they wandered to the edge of town and onto this kind of lonely dirt road, which had the reputation of a lover's lane. It was it's called DeRussi's Lane. And they kind of get deeper into the brush. Um, the, 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 the road abuts this abandoned farm known as the Phillips Farm. And this was kind of known as like a local trysting spot. So they were out and wandering and they they walk past what Pearl remarks is, look, there's there's two people sleeping there. And and Ray kind of shrugs it off and says, uh, you know, don't 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 pay any attention. Let's let's just be on our way. And they kind of find a, a clearing um, and one thing leads to another. And. Uh, they they spend a few um, minutes uh, alone with one another there. Eventually, you know, they come back and they pass these two, this what appeared to be this snoozing couple once again. And Pearl immediately feels uneasy, and she says, you know, uh, you know, Ray, look, they're still there. They're they're lying there the same way as where as how we just seen them. And this, you know, prompts them to take a closer look. And their description of the crime scene is not as vivid or detailed as. Uh, some of the later descriptions, some of the, the people that came right after them and, and did a more thorough inspection. But what we know is they looked at these, looked a little bit more closely at um, these these two bodies lying beneath a crabapple tree, which is, became this famous image. This crabapple tree became a famous uh, kind of symbol in the crime. And you know they they pretty quickly realized these people are not breathing. You know they they could clearly see some sort of marks. Um, on on their heads because when they run out of this area to a local home, they 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 say it looks like there's two people who have been shot. Um, but basically, they realize that they are standing above uh, two corpses, and that is what sets you know the whole thing in motion. Right. So they notify police, 
and you write that two patrolmen arrive, but they are beat cops. So they have to hitch a ride in a car. <laughs> yes. And they come out, look at the bodies, and realize it's, it's probably not in their jurisdiction. So there's almost immediately a controversy. Who is supposed to handle this investigation? Yeah, and that and that was another theme of this case because you know immediately these 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 cops were kind of out of their depth. They 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 start to look at things clearly. This is a, a strange scene. There is, uh, you know, upon closer inspection, it's a man and a woman. They're they're lying next to one another, but they're also posed in this kind of very artful sort of sort of tableau. You know, his arm is outstretched, and the the woman's head is resting on it. Her hand is, has been placed upon his thigh, there's a stack of what appear to be love letters between the bodies. There's, you know, his, some of his effects are scattered about. There's, there's a calling card with his name, name on it. So clearly it was, it was someone or some people, whoever, whoever killed them had arranged the bodies in this, in this very careful way. And I think that these two officers who, who, who were the first ones to respond, you know, essentially beat cops, as you say, their names were Edward Garrigan and James Curran. Um, and they're pretty quickly, you know, this is like the rural outskirts of town. So this is kind of where New Brunswick, New Jersey meets the town of, of Franklin or, or, or Somerset, New Jersey. And they're in different counties. Somerset County is basically on, on one side. Middlesex, where New Brunswick's located, is on the other side. These are New Brunswick police. And one of them, James Curran, eventually says, this, this is no case of ours because he recognizes that it seems that these bodies, he believes, are over the county line in Somerset. So they go back to the house where... Pearl and Ray initially kind of ran to try to get help. And they call their superior in New Brunswick, who then calls the Somerset County officials in, in Somerville, New Jersey, you know, who they get on their way, as a detective and some other authorities from Somerset County, and they arrive. But this, but this notion of jurisdictional discrepancy, it kind of it wasn't resolved very, very quickly, in fact. And they had you kind of had the officials from both counties kind of duly investigating because there's also a question of where were these bodies we know where the bodies were found but right away they didn't know where they were actually killed and there was a question of whether or not they had been killed perhaps in new brunswick or middlesex county and transported there which would have that that would have played into the case if, if in fact it was determined they were killed in, in new brunswick that would have been maybe a case for the new brunswick authorities but yes there was immediately the sense kind of like you know we're a, out, a little out of our depth here and, and we don't really want to deal with this either. So let's kind of throw it to Somerset County. And, um, you know, it kind of, that kind of set the tone for this sort of bumbling, tortured uh, investigation that would follow in the weeks and months to come. Right. There was also a question, of course, about how they had been killed. They had both been shot, but the woman's throat had been slit also. Yeah. And I, as, as, as I said, the more kind of people who arrived at the scene, officials and otherwise, the more it became clear that this was a pretty grisly killing. There was a, a local veterinarian who was passing by um, the roadway that led to this, this, this kind of abandoned farm. And one of the patrolmen at one point was, was standing watch. And this veterinary surgeon named, named his name was uh, Elton Leon uh, Loblein. He shows up, kind of inquires about what's going on. And, and he says, you know, we have this, um, these dead bodies out here. And in the meantime, there had been, a local reporter had shown up, and he had picked up this calling card that was placed near the, the victim's foot, and he and he reads the name, and it's and on the card it's Reverend Edward Hall, who um, was a very distinguished, prominent, popular local minister. So when this veterinary surgeon arrives, one of the officers, James Curran, says, 
have these two bodies. We think one of them is is, is Reverend Hall, Reverend Hall from New, from New Brunswick, from St. John the Evangelist. And, and uh, Lobline, in fact, says, you know, I know him. So they say, why don't, you, why don't you come back and see if you can if you can identify this guy? So this veterinary surgeon who, you know, has some, I guess, degree, some command of anatomy and, 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 the, and the body, he comes and does a pretty close inspection and he lifts up the, the, the dead woman's scarf and he immediately sees this, this mess of maggots and realizes there's this very thick gash. He sees that the man has been shot three times, uh, once in the face, and that the woman has been shot three times in the face. Um, eventually the detectives arrive and they, they do kind of determine that Clearly, someone had shot these people apparently at close range. There's a question as to how many bullet casings were found in the grass. Originally, there was, there was a description of uh, of three, but only one was eventually recovered. People are descending on this crime scene very quickly. So, you know, immediately there's all this hubbub and the authorities did a really, you know, pathetic job at securing any of the evidence or keeping the crowds back. So, you know, everything is, is being tampered with. People are picking up the love letters and, and, and stamping about the bodies and, 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 and whatnot. But nonetheless, it does become clear pretty quickly that this is a pretty gruesome killing involving close range shots to the face and a very severe cut to the dead woman's neck. And their, their faces had been covered um, apparently to shade them from the sun. Well, the, uh, Reverend Hall's face, someone had placed a, a Panama hat over it. The, the woman whose name was Eleanor Mills, her scarf had sort of initially been been covering her face. And when, when Elton Loblon, the, the veterinary surgeon, pulled it down and discovered the maggots, he said, well, I can't, I can't recognize, I don't recognize her, but I don't think, and he said in, in, in hindsight, I don't think anyone would have rec- recognized her face in the condition that it was in. To, to, to really say that, you know, these, these bodies, which had been laying here at least 24 hours, it, it seemed, they were, they were already in pretty bad condition. They were starting to decompose. There was, you know, maggots, maggots were also kind of crawling all over, all over Hall's face. At one point, you know, a detective remarked that he had seen them crawling up his nostrils and, and under his eyelids. So it was, it was for anyone who has never seen a dead body, let alone a, this type of dead body, it would have been a pretty shocking and you know disgusting sight to behold. Right. So the Reverend Edward Wheeler Hall uh, was physically average an average build, average face, um, but as you write in your book, his personality was intoxicating. Would you tell us more about Hall? Yeah, so Hall was he—he he was born in Brooklyn. He, um, you know, he kind of grew up in what, by all accounts, would seem to be a pretty working or middle class uh, sort of upbringing. But at a young age, he had enrolled at this prestigious uh, choir school in in Manhattan. And, you know, he, he trains there as a choir boy. And this may have been his, his kind of introduction to a life of faith, but it was a very rigorous, rigorous program where, where young boys were schooled and given a very high quality education in return for this very rigorous sort of choir service. So, uh, you know, that's kind of set him on, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, upwardly mobile academic Path. He went on to Hobart College in Geneva, New York, uh, where he did pretty well academically. He then went on to get uh, to the seminary to get his his uh, theology degree. He ends up as kind of the number two at this this parish, this Episcopal parish, 
maybe about half hour from New Brunswick elsewhere in New Jersey. Um, eventually, he, you know, he's, he was on a pretty upward track, I guess, within the diocese, because when um, the Reverend of St. John the Evangelist in New Brunswick, New Jersey, uh, which was a bigger church, um, you know, not a huge church, but a church that had, you know, some very affluent congregants. It was a more established parish. When the, when the present rector of that church moved on to a new job, they went to Hall. And that's how he ended up in New Brunswick. And he went there, he took his mother and his two sisters, and they kind of all shacked up in this kind of like dingy, you know, boarding house, something that his, his pretty modest uh, salary uh, as a, as a Episcopal minister would have, would have afforded them. But immediately this, you know, this is in 1909. And on his first, first day, he goes to meet the congregants. It was, it was a rainy night. He goes to the church and immediately it's just, he's, he's gregarious. He's young at the time. He's in his, in his, uh, his late, his exact age at the time escapes him, but he would have been in, in his late twenties, I think maybe, maybe 28. So he's young. He, he is, you know, kind of schmoozing with, with the parish, with the parishioners and they are all immediately drawn to him. Uh, you know, there's like a newspaper reporter who was there remarked in their story about this, that it seemed as if, you know, these, that they were already, you know, longtime friends. And he immediately just sets this, this tone, uh, in the church and he, he starts improving it. Uh, he becomes very popular with, with the youth of the church. He establishes a boy scout troop. He undertakes all these different, you know, renovations and he improves church, you know, records and he starts hosting different sorts of events. So he, be, he immediately became this, this very popular figure in the church. And especially you know, the, the, uh, in, a, in a, a church at the time would have kind of been the center of, of social life for a lot of people. And the women of the church were very drawn to him. Uh, you know, I don't know if, if ladies man is too strong a word, but he definitely was, was popular and especially popular with the women of this, this church, St. John the Evangelist. Right. And one of these women happened to be Eleanor Mills. But before we get to her, let's continue with the Reverend's life, specifically his marriage to Francis Noel Stevens, a woman who came from a very old and wealthy family. Would you talk more about her, how she and Hall met? Yeah, so Francis, Francis Stevens, Francis... Francis Noel Stevens, soon to be Francis Hall. She is, you know, kind of a typical member of America's Gilded Age gentry. She, you know, came up, she was born in 1874 in South Carolina. She's not from the South, but her her father uh, suffered from tuberculosis, as do a number of, there's, there's sort of a recurring tuberculosis theme throughout this book because it was still problematic enough back then that, you know, people would seek treatment at different sanitariums or, you know, different, different regions where they thought the, the weather would, might, might kind of restore their health. And that is where, how Francis's family ends up in, in South Carolina, where she was born. Her father ends up dying six months after she was born. She was the youngest of three siblings. She had two older brothers and she came, as you said, from this very, you know, esteemed family on, on both sides, the Stevens family, you know, their, their history really goes back to the revolutionary period. She had a very esteemed uh, great-great-grandfather named Ebenezer Stevens, who was kind of like in the mix with, with the founding fathers, and he fought in the Revolutionary War, and he corresponded. You know, I found letters where he was corresponding with Thomas Jefferson and, and James Madison. So he was this very, you know, kind of well-connected blue blood figure who, who dates back to the founding of, of the Republic. So that's kind of the line she comes from on that, on that side. And this same, this same great, great grandfather, he had two wives and descended from the other line of his family uh, was none, none other than Edith Wharton, who's also kind of a symbol of, I guess, uh, you know, the, the, the Victorian woman 
and I think represented a lot of the values that Frances herself really held dear. So she was a very, you know, kind of private, haughty, imperious woman who, you know, came up uh, very much as you would expect of, of any kind of upper crust woman of the time. Uh, she went to, you know, a, a private girls' academy and, you know, she was in the society pages showing up at weddings and, and, and this and that. Her other side of her family, her mother's side, the Carpenters, were also kind of like a, a wealthy merchant class sort of family. They had a very, her, her uncle had established a very successful wallpaper business in New Brunswick that eventually kind of did this real estate transaction with, with Johnson and Johnson when that company was just starting. Um, so she had ties to the Johnson and Johnson dynasty. One of her cousins married um, into that family. So on both sides, this very kind of wealthy Victorian era uh, clan um, and the carpenters, there were a lot of them in in New Brunswick. So she comes up, you know, on the on the rich side of town, up the hill, and you know this this area where they kind of all live in their fancy homes and, and mansions and whatnot. But she, you know, you know, as I note in the book, that I found all these clippings in the newspapers where she'd be, you know, mentioned at, you know, as a maid of honor or a bridesmaid or showing up at this wedding or that. But she, you know, for a woman of that time, especially by the time she was 35, she was still unmarried and kind of still, she lived with her mother in their mansion at 23 Nickel Avenue in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And, you know, that, at that point, that's, that's, that's quite old for a woman to, to still not have found a match. And I think it looks like she probably will end up as a, as a spinster. And I guess that, I don't know if that word is still <laughs> in use, but certainly that's what they would have called her at the time. Um, but then suddenly, you know, Edward Hall comes into New Brunswick, this new reverend uh, at this church where it was not Francis's family church. She went to the, the larger Episcopal church in New Brunswick, but she'd started teaching summer uh, Sunday school at St. John's and spending more time there and at some point, you know, when, when Edward shows up in 1909, she becomes more involved. And we don't know what, what the exact provenance of their relationship is, but we do know that Edward had kind of a romantic attraction to a younger woman in the church who was his same age, around 27, 28 at the time. And, you know, there was kind of a romantic attachment and I think an expectation, at least on this young woman's part, that he would propose to her. But at some point, we don't know exactly what happens, but he proposes to Francis in, in, instead. And she was seven years older than him, but clearly he is marrying into wealth and money. So, you know, I think that you could confidently maybe assume that, you know, he was something of a gold digger, but, you know, here's this upwardly mobile guy who came from these pretty humble origins in, in, in Brooklyn and works his way up into the Episcopal church and becomes a prominent rector. And suddenly he is now a member of this very illustrious, wealthy uh, New Jersey family. We will be back in just a moment. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. So how does Frances learn about her husband's murder? And what was her reaction? So Edward disappeared two nights before the bodies were found, which would have been September 14th, 1922. Uh, he leaves the house around 7.30. One of the maids, a woman named Louise Geist, had answered a call. And it was a woman. It was, it was Eleanor Mills. And, you know, Francis briefly had picked up the line and, and, Luis kind of called out right away, right away and said, you know, it's, it's for the reverend. And he comes out and he answers the call and it's, it's Eleanor and Luis overhears the conversation. She hears them. She hears him kind of making a plan to meet. He comes down, he tells Francis, oh, I have to go out to, to make a call. He has, he, I think the reason that they gave was that he had to meet her to go discuss some confusing medical bill. She had had uh, an operation at that the Hall family had you know, fronted the money for because Eleanor Mills came from this more working class, semi-impoverished upbringing. So he goes out at around 7.30 on September 14th and never comes home. So so immediately Francis the next morning is, is you know, the same maid uh, who took the call the night before notices that she appears very nervous. She, she gets down to the, you know, set the table for breakfast and the reverend's clearly not there. She kind of knew something was up because she saw that his hat wasn't in its usual spot and Francis's brother, Willie Stevens, who lived with them, kind of made a remark that something had, had happened last night and I'd rather let, let Mrs. Hall tell you. And at breakfast, she comes clean and basically tells her servant that uh, Mr. Hall didn't come home last night. And and Luis describes her just kind of being a nervous wreck all day, jingling her keys and, and pacing around. Um, and she said that she had called the police and asked if there had been any reports of automobile accidents, uh, any any casualties reported, and and they say no, there haven't. And she didn't say, you know, I'm looking for my husband, Reverend Edward Hall, because she claimed she didn't want to invite, you know, kind of this is like a small provincial town, and, and people would have known who he was and and who she was, and and I think she she claimed she didn't want to invite any unwanted attention. But basically, the next the next 
over this 48 hours or so that, that he's missing, uh, Francis is nervous and unsettled and, and, and trying to, to, she kind of is, is assuming that they're dead. And I don't know why she would have jumped to that conclusion, but she's, she says to people, she runs into Eleanor Mills' husband, who was the parish sexton, and realized that their spouses both have not come home. And, and uh, James Mills, Jim Mills, he kind of remarks at one point, he says, do you think they've eloped? And that was kind of a curious thing to say um, if, you, if you didn't suspect your wife of cheating. But I, you know, he kind of later just shrugged that off as, as this kind of off the cuff silly remark. But Francis says, no, they, they would have, I, I think they must be, be dead or else they would have come home by now. So she's a, immediately very fatalistic about what, what has happened to her husband. So it's not till Saturday morning, these bodies are found, word starts flying around town. Francis is very nervous. One of her other cousins from the Carpenter family, Edwin Carpenter, who lives nearby, he comes over with his wife and she tells him what's going on and, and they're trying to calm her down. There must be some explanation here. And she's sitting there with, with Edwin's wife, Elevine Carpenter, who was one of her close friends, and she gets a phone call. It's from the local reporter who I mentioned had, had popped up at the scene. And he starts asking her the question saying, you know, is, is Mr. Hall, is Reverend Hall home? And you no, know, he's not. Why are you asking me that? And this, this reporter who knows there is a dead man uh, in this field across town, presumed to be her husband, is trying to figure out whether she knows or not as he's, as he's trying to close his story. But he doesn't tell her. And she gets off the phone very unnerved. And she calls the family attorney. And she's like, get down to the newspaper office immediately and find out what's going on. But in the meantime, you know, I, the, the word is starting to fly all over town. And her family attorney and her cousin Edwin, they do go over to the farm eventually after visiting the newspaper and, and learning about what has happened. But in the meantime, Edwin Carpenter's wife, Elevine, who had been keeping Francis company, she had gone home. She hears about the murders and she goes home to tell Francis what you fear is true. He's dead. And, and Francis Elevine describes her breaking down, which is very out of character for this very stoic sort of proud Victorian woman. Um, but she gets herself together, goes downstairs and, and people are already starting to show up and, and offer their condolences. So that is how Francis finds out officially that her husband is dead. And Jim Mills, uh, married to Eleanor, as you've said, they had a very interesting relationship prior to her untimely death. They were living together. They had children, including a 16-year-old daughter named Charlotte, but they were pretty much estranged. And she had really nothing but disdain for him. And it sounds like it was a really uncomfortable living situation in the Mills home. Absolutely. And you know, this is, as I said, this is a poorer family. They lived just a few blocks from, from the halls and the carpenters who lived in all these beautiful kind of houses up the hill. But they lived in this, you know, more, you know, very working class districts where they, they rented the second floor and the attic, um, this four room, tiny apartment. They, they were a family of four. They crammed in. There's really just two bedrooms. You know, their, their marriage had clearly broken down at some point. Eleanor was very much younger than, she was almost 10 years younger than Jim. Uh, and it seems very clear from, from what I discovered in the historical record that she got pregnant when she was 17 and they married very quickly. It was sort of a shotgun wedding because, you know, her, her daughter Charlotte was born seven months after, after their wedding. And then a son, Daniel Mills, followed a few years later. So she, she married pretty much. I mean, she didn't finish high school because she ended up pregnant and basically ends up marrying this older guy that she had sort of been having this 
some sort of affair with. So she kind of, you know, for, for a woman who really did have ambitions and, and dreams of kind of a better life, she just ends up on this this path of working class domesticity from a very young age. And by the time of the murders, it had gotten to a point, as, as you note, where there was a lot of tension in the household. She is very dis- disdainful of, of, of Jim. They argued. Money was a constant marital stressor, which is, you know, I think that's the case in a lot of marriages, but in a, in a relationship where you're kind of just getting by week to week and you have a husband who makes less than $40 a week working two different jobs. It's one as a janitor at an elementary school, the other as uh, the sexton of the church where you belong. You know, that's a, that's a pretty tense situation. You have two kids, two mouths to feed, you know, two other mouths to feed. But Eleanor's presence at the church, she she was she was in the choir from a very young age, and she was had a beautiful soprano. She's a beautiful soprano voice, and she spent more and more time at the church. You know, not just because I think she be, ended up in this affair with 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 the reverend there, but also because it was really all she had in 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 life aside from this really difficult hardworking home home life, um, and that became a really a real flashpoint in their marriage. The fact that she. She, she would go to the church, she ran errands, she, you know, would, um, aside from the choir, she had all sorts of responsibilities that she took upon herself, cleaning the chancel or cleaning the reverend's study. She was really involved in, in every part of, of, of the life of, of the church at, at St. John the Evangelist. And, and Jim at one point says, you know, you, you, you spend, you know, yells at her for spending too much time up there. And he said, you know, you're the only woman who runs up there as much as you uh, like that so much. And she says something to the effect of, of course I do. And I, I, I care more for Reverend Hall's little finger than I do for your entire, your entire body. So she would say these really cutting, nasty things to Jim. And in fact, on the night that the same night where she disappeared, she leaves the house after making this plan to go meet Reverend Hall. And Jim's kind of up on, on the, on their their deck, working on some, you know, also a carpenter, so he was doing some woodwork. He was actually making some uh, window box planters for Francis Hall, um, and he says, "Where are you going?" And she says, "Follow me and find out." You know, this very again, kind of like biting reply. But Jim was kind of used to it at that point because their their marriage had uh, effectively completely dissolved. Um, if there was any time where they were in love, that was a, a distant memory, and. You have to think that there's no way that he couldn't have suspected there was something going on. The letters that were found between the bodies, they offered some insight for police, the the relationship between Eleanor and the Reverend. What can you tell us about those letters? Yeah, so the letters that were found between the bodies, and you know, they were there's different descriptions of this in the historical record, and there's some more sensational accounts that they were torn up and scattered about. But really, you know, uh, according to my research and everything I was able to learn, they were kind of just pi- uh, piled up. And all of the letters found at the scene were from were written from Eleanor to Edward. There were none that El- Edward had written to Eleanor, although those would eventually materialize later. But these were very uh, you know, on the one hand, they were pretty steamy at times, and and you know she really expressed intense physical feelings for him. And again, as I said, she she kind of expressed these dreams she had of of you know something much bigger than than the life she was she was living. But they're really intense, kind of saccharine, steamy missives that would leave no doubt that if, if these are not some kind of like 
unrequited romantic obsession, certainly there's there's a pretty strong attachment between between these two people. And you know, one of the things about Jim Mills, he was kind of this meek, mild, dim-witted sort of sort of guy, and he really claimed ignorance of the affair for like as did Francis, but but Jim, I think he really kind of like leaned into this this kind of like dimwitted personality where you know he would say, oh, those letters, you know, she would she would copy she read she would read romance novels and copy copy things out of them and and then she would just burn them in the fire and I thought nothing of it. So that was kind of like his his uh, excuse for what the letters could have been. But really, these letters they really were very detailed and specific and really paint a picture of this like hot affair going on between between Eleanor and Edward. So once the nature of their relationship was better understood by police, this information started circulating through the newspapers, but it wasn't a surprise uh, necessarily for locals. They had heard rumors of this affair between the two for quite a while. Yeah, aside from the letters, pretty much from the earliest days uh, of of the investigation, which you know, the other part of my my book, it's it's a story about the newspapers and how they how they cover these these sorts of crimes. I mean, this was like a national sensation pretty much immediately. So there's just reporters have descended on New Brunswick and they're getting all sorts of dirt, and a lot of what they're getting is indeed you know sources coming forward with different accounts of the affair. And it, it, it's, it's, it's pretty clear there is a lot of gossip and intrigue within the church itself. You know, there's members of the choir who, who come forward and they're describing, you know, the way that Eleanor and Edward would always disappear after choir practice, or one choir member recalls seeing them arm in arm in midtown Manhattan, and all sorts of stuff like this is, is coming out largely in the press. And it is clear to anyone who is not blind that there was clearly this long-standing affair between these two people, which again, Francis and 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 Jim, the widow and widower, widower, continue to deny any knowledge of it and really even refuse to acknowledge that there was anything going on. They have all sorts of, they have different reasons. You know, Jim, again, I said, as I said, he kind of just writes it off as like, oh, this was just a fantasy of hers. And 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 Francis is just saying, there's no way this is, this is true, you know? So it really strains credulity, at, you know, between the letters and the circumstances of the crime scene itself and everything that's coming out in the newspapers and all the gossip that's flying around town. It does seem that if, if, if Jim and Francis are actually honest, being honest that they had, they had no idea of anything going on between their spouses, then they're, you would think they're not the most keen or um, sharpest knives in the, in the drawer. But yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a, I think that's what made this case so sensational because there was, you know, it, it had everything it had, sex, it had money, murder. I mean, everything just kind of starts, all these elements kind of just start swirling in this cauldron of uh, sensationalized 1920s media. So back to the crime scene for, for a moment. A couple of things I'd like to ask you about. First, there was a soil analysis done, and I'd love it if you could address that. And two, this was really a, a crime of passion, right? They had both been shot, but it seemed as though whoever had killed Eleanor had dispatched her with some emotion, wouldn't you say? There was a definitely a disproportionate amount of violence committed on Eleanor Mills. And the other thing that's symbolic here, you know, aside from, from shooting the woman in the face three times, 
you know, the, the, the slitting of her throat, you know, this, this was seen as kind of, you could, you could have read this as a symbolic act. You know, this was a woman who was a talented singer and this was kind of striking right at the heart of that by severing essentially her voice, albeit post-mortem. But I think, you know, the, the, that ties into your other question about soil analysis, which goes back to the question of were these people killed where the bodies were found? So there was you know, a certain amount of blood at the crime scene, but not like it wasn't like it, it was completely covered or soaked in blood. So the detectives, they, they, they did sample the soil. They sent it off to a, a company, which what is now called what, what is now known as Bristol Myers Squibb. And that report came back and it concluded that likely the bodies, they had been killed where their bodies were found. And what the what the soil analysis based on, I'll try to explain this in, in lay terms as best I can. Basically, there was enough blood that came out into the soil where it was plausible they were killed there because if, if she had, if her throat had been cut post-mortem, you know, if her throat was cut first, there would have been a lot more blood. If they were shot first and dead, and then her throat was severed, there wouldn't have been as much blood, but there would have been the amount of blood that they did find in the soil. So I, you know, I don't know enough about the um, accuracy of these types of uh, forensic analyses in, in 1922, but based on the soil analysis, they conclude that yes, they were killed here, and this would have been in Somerset County, uh, not Middlesex. So you know, at that point, pretty much. The Somerset County officials they, they they have to take over the case. Uh, they take the front seat in the in the in the investigation after the soil analysis kind of confirms uh, to their mind that this was a crime that was in their jurisdiction. Right, right. Oh, and also his watch was missing, wasn't it? Yeah, that's interesting too. You know, his, he had a gold watch on him, and I think that you know the Hall Francis's family from the very beginning wanted to kind of write this off. This must've been a robbery gone wrong, or they had, they had all kind of theories. It could have been a blackmail gang, could have been this or that. Um, the fact that the watch was missing and it didn't turn up in any pawn shops though, kind of cuts against that, that narrative. And the, the youths who found the bodies, Pearl and Ray, Pearl Bomber and Ray Schneider, is it possible that Ray like pocketed the watch? Yeah, that's definitely possible. Ray, uh, Pearl had different recollections of whether or not the watch was, whether or not they saw the watch on 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 Hall when they first discovered the bodies, but the fact that where was the gold watch? That was a really kind of bedeviling detail of the case, and in fact, is the detail that kind of led the authorities in the absence of any other like firm leads that they had because they were not you know immediately pursuing the spurned spouses. They kind of circled back to Pearl and Ray and took a closer look at them. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, back to the spurned spouses, uh, specifically Frances. She certainly had motive, but it's also pretty unlikely that a refined, genteel, middle-aged lady is going to go and, and shoot two people dead, you know, and then slit a throat. She would have had help. And she had two brothers, Henry and Willie, who was a bit eccentric. And police believed that one or both of these brothers might have been there for her with her that night. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I should say, I think that they, they were on the radar of the police, but again, this was a really wealthy, prominent family. And, you know, I think there was definitely a sense of, you know, at, at first, at least taking Francis at her word that, um, that they did, that they knew nothing of this and, and had nothing to do with the whole thing. 
but the you know the the brothers there's Willie Stevens who is there's there's Henry Stevens who's the oldest of the three and there's Willie who is the middle child they're both older than Francis um you know, I'll start with Henry because you can cover that a little more quickly. He he lives in Lavalette, New Jersey, which is down the shore. He lives in a beautiful old colonial there at the biggest house in town. He is a retired arms dealer. He had worked for the Remington Arms Company demonstrating shotguns. So right there, there's immediately kind of like, oh, this this guy is good with a gun. Um, that was inter- that was an interesting uh, kind of fact, but. He, you know, said I was fishing on the beach in in Lavalette the night of the murders. Uh, there was like ten other people there who saw me, who could who could back me up on that. So pretty much right away they they put him aside because it seemed like he had a pretty firm alibi. Willie, he is kind of more of an oddball. He is an, he's eccentric. He has these kind of childlike qualities about him. Clearly an intelligent man because his 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 room is filled with all sorts of esoteric books about botany and metallurgy and these these really sort of difficult uh, intellectual subject, subjects. He smokes a pipe, he, he, he reads the paper, but he also has all these really weird curiosities about him. Like for, for one thing, he is seems to have this obsession with, with firefighters. He spends a lot of his time at the local firehouse, kind of palling around with, 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 the, with the engine company. And I think these guys kind of it's it's almost like a little a little kid who would go hanging around hang out with the firefighters. It's almost what the relationship was 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 like. Uh, but it was just really strange. He he was really obsessed with firefighters. There was there was all sorts of stories, whether or not they're apocryphal, of you know one time supposedly lit a fire in his backyard and put on his his fireman's hat and and put it out. And he he marched in the parades with them. And he 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 carried this American flag in the parade that he had bought for the engine company. And he was kind of like this honorary member. He also kind of loafed about the the local Hungarian quarter. There was a large Hungarian population, immigrant Hungarian population in New Brunswick. Uh, he was friendly with a lot of those people. He would kind of run errands for them. This is a kind of grown man who couldn't be trusted to by his siblings to manage his own affairs. So though this was a wealthy family reported at the time to be worth something like $2 million, which would be many more tens of millions of dollars in, in today's money. Uh, Willie, nonetheless, lived on this kind of allowance drawn from the family trust, this kind of like weekly stipend he was given. And he lived his whole adult life uh, unmarried as a bachelor in the mansion at 23 Nickel, Ave- Nickel Avenue with his sister, his younger sister, Francis. And that is where he was on the murder night up in his room, smoking a pipe until he went to bed. So really, he is Francis's alibi. Uh, the two maids that were in the in the home that night didn't see her after around 10 o'clock. The story that Francis and, and Willie told was that Francis became so frantic by 2 a.m., you know, staying up and her husband is still not home, that she goes and knocks on Willie's door and wakes him up and tells him that, you know, Edward's missing and they go out and they walked down to, to St. John, the church, to, to see if he's there, to see if he had fallen asleep while he was working. They coincidentally kind of passed by the Mills home because they, they obviously knew that El- Edward did spend a lot of time with Eleanor Mills, at least as church colleagues. There's no lights on there. So they go home and they're seen by two men slipping into, or at least Francis is seen, you know, around between 2.30 and 3.30 a.m., slipping into, you know, through the gate and heading back into to, to their home. So that is kind of their their story. Um, but really, they're one another's alibi. But the, the, the police early on kind of take them at their word on that, um, and they, they, they move on to other possibilities. 
And Jim Mills has an alibi as well, right? His daughter, Charlotte, vouches for him. Jim has a better alibi in terms of one that could be corroborated. Um, He was seen chatting with uh, a a neighbor downstairs around nine o'clock. Charlotte, his daughter, had come home from her aunt's house around 10.15, confirmed that her father was home then. He went around the corner uh, to buy a, a bottle of soda water from the corner store. So he had someone who saw him there at 11. Is there some wiggle room there where he could have huffed it out to this farm a couple miles away and and committed the crime and come back? It's, it's, it's possible, especially because we don't really know exactly what time the killings would have occurred. I think that it came to be accepted. They believed, the authorities believed it would have been maybe around 1030 or so. But it does seem like Jim was spotted you know, on, on both ends of that time frame, he was spotted by people. Uh, so again, he also is not like, a main suspect right away. Although it should be said that the authorities definitely were much more deferential to to Francis than they were with Jim. Like he, they gave Francis a whole day to kind of to process and grieve, but they pretty much were were grilling Jim right away, and that became a theme of this this too, this kind of kind of class conflict and, and the way that a poor working class man was was treated with the authorities versus by the authorities versus this wealthy family who had all these connections and they didn't want to ruffle you know feathers feathers with but but neither Jim nor Francis in the beginning are are looked looked at very closely at all back after these brief messages and we have returned again so the police are pretty much flummoxed a lot of suspects a lot of dead ends They do get a break, however, when this really fascinating woman named Jane Gibson comes forward. Who is Jane Gibson and what is her story? So Jane Gibson, she and she comes forward, I should say, just let's just, as you said, this is a really complicated case. I mentioned how the authorities circled back to Pearl and Ray over the suspicion about the watch. There's this whole sideshow where they kind of like railroad Ray and one of his friends, and for a few days it looks like they have a solution to this crime because Ray confessed that he'd been out on the farm and his friend had killed, had, had is the one who had pulled the trigger and killed these two people. But it was a complete farce just because the, 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 the authorities really were grasping at straws and had nothing else. And it was quickly, pretty quickly like cleared up that, you know, Ray had, had come out with this confession under duress during this like kind of third degree drilling. But this is important because the, the papers were covering this and there was a lot of outcry in, in town that this like innocent young man was accused of this crime. So Jane Gibson, who's this this pig farmer, she she's literally um, a farmer who raises hogs uh, as well as uh, as well as growing corn on this kind of ramshackle farm adjacent to the farm where the abandoned farm where the murders took place. She comes forward in the midst of all this, and she uh, she knew somehow George Totten, who is the lead. He was the lead detective of Somerset County, which, as I said, had kind of taken over the investigation. She comes forward with this really specific but wild story about the murder night, and they, they keep it quiet at first because they kind of want to they want to look into it, and they don't want the press kind of finding out about it and. And, and starting to report on it right away. But the gist is that she uh, was roused by the barking of one of her dogs sometime around nine or so, or you know, not long before the, the murders would have been committed on, on the night of September 14th. And she believes that 
someone had been stealing her corn and she goes out and she she mounts her 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 trusted mule she had a bunch of mules too and one of them was was named Jenny it was her favorite mule she gets on Jenny and she starts out on on the this lonely dirt road Derusi's lane in pursuit of what she says she believed was a corn thief and she she sees a wagon in the distance and she thinks that that's you know that's the person that has her corn and she's following the wagon it turns on to the main road that le- leads to new brunswick she loses sight of it but um while she's there at this kind of intersection a car pulls in and does a u-turn because it's turning around on the road and there was two people that were kind of walking in the direction of the abandoned farm so she sees in the he- in the glow of the headlights these two faces and thinks nothing much of it but she starts to ride back towards her her kind of shack on her farm that she lives in up the road and then she hears things and i should say too here she told different versions of this story it would come out in the weeks and, and, and months to come different versions of this of this story emerged so the, the one i'm telling now is kind of an amalgamation of of all of those because dif- details were shifting this way or that and it was kind of inconsistent in different tellings but the main arc was was always the same that she was riding back to her to her farm on the mule and she heard voices in the distance and a commo- you know some sort of commotion and she went closer on her mule to see what was going on and she heard men and women arguing and screaming and she hears a woman screaming and she hears uh, a gunshot and she, she hears a gunshot. She hears a woman screaming. She hears three more shots in different versions of the story. She claims to have seen people who were, who were there, but she basically gets on the mule and hightails it back to the farm and later on in the night goes back to the scene of the crime possibly because she says she had lost in, in, in the midst of all this, lost one of her moccasins and she wanted to go look for it. So when she goes back later at night, she she claims that the moon is now high, so there was more visibility and she sees a woman weeping over the body of, of a dead man. And your listeners can very quickly guess who <laughs> this woman was, what her name was. And so basically this is what kind of just completely blows up the entire investigation and the, the authorities now, under pressure from the public, under pressure from the press, under pressure from the governor who is dealing with this, you know, the whole, like I said, the whole country is following this this story and it is starting to look embarrassing that the, that the, that the authorities are not getting anywhere. So there's a lot of pressure and they kind of just run with this witness because they really have nothing else to go on at that point. And finally, they have someone who is claiming that they saw what happened um, that night on the farm. Yeah. To give an idea of how sensational this case is, you mentioned that F. Scott Fitzgerald was interviewed, and he was a popular writer at this point, uh, having just completed The Beautiful and the Damned. Some reporter asked him who his favorite duo was. Yeah, they asked him for a number. Who are some of your favorite duos? And he names a bunch of famous, kind of like, you know, more... um illustrious duos so, like for example like lord and taylor but then at the end of it he tacks on the the pig lady and her jenny mule because it was you know they were just they everyone in this case became these these kind of just celebrities at the time and especially once the pig woman comes she's the biggest celebrity of them all because she is this kind of theatrical eccentric raconteur who very quickly just starts running her mouth off to anyone who will listen and reporters as you can imagine i mean this is like candy for them 
they're just descending on her farm. She's, she's, she's sometimes hostile with them. Then the next day she's giving them interviews with all these juicy quotes. And like I said, her story keeps changing. She, it seems to sometimes get more and more dramatic, but they're all eating it up. So the case at this point is just really starting to reach a fever pitch. And as she relays her story, she also mentions hearing the words, Henry, oh, Henry, spoken. Yes, you have, you've, you, I've missed the most crucial detail that she claims after the gunshots ring out, she heard a woman scream, oh, Henry. Uh, and as we know, as you know, people who are listening to this, you're trying to keep track of all these characters, but Henry is the name of her oldest brother, Henry Stevens. She also notably has a cousin who lives, as I said, her, her family all kind of lived in this one wealthy enclave of New Brunswick. There's also a cousin named Henry de la Briere Carpenter who lives you know, nearby them all as well. But there are two Henrys that Francis uh, is, is related to. And then you have this, this wild witness who says she heard a woman scream out, oh, Henry, at the moment that, that the shots are fired. I have to say, I, I had to check when I read that. I wanted to know when the O. Henry candy bar was invented. <laughs> oh, interesting. It was 1920, uh, but she certainly wasn't uh, declaring her love for that candy bar. You know, this is such a, this is one of these, these stories that it's kind of truth is stranger than fiction. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, who, who knows? But, <laughs> yeah. um, certainly that probably would have come out at, at some point, but that's, that's, that's an interesting, interesting ripple you've added. Yeah. J- just a little bit of trivia there. So a grand jury is called with the intent to gather more information, primarily on Francis and her brothers. And among the people called to testify during that, that first grand jury was a man named Ralph Gorsline. And correct me if I have this wrong, but the theory was that Gorsline had intercepted a love note at the church, which was really what set off this chain of events. Yes, as we said earlier, like there was all this sort of intrigue and rumors that were just it was flying, and a lot of it kind of revolved around a few other people in the church. One of them was was Ralph Corslin. He had publicly acknowledged at one point that he had spoken to Reverend Hall at one point about, you know, he didn't say like you got to cut off this this affair with with your favorite choir singer, but he had, he acknowledged that he had said something to the effect of you know kind of suggested to him that there was a lot of gossip and he might want to be a little more discreet or, or whatever. There was also these rumors that there had been another couple from the church or a man and one woman from the church who were rumored to have been driving out on the same lover's lane the night of the murders and happened to have been there and, and heard these gunshots. And the suspicion was that it was this, this never spelled out in the newspaper reports uh, in the moment, but the suspicion was that it was Ralph Gorsline and a woman named Catherine Rastal, who's also in the choir. So they were they were believed to have Ralph Gorsline was married. Catherine Rastal was not his wife, so they were they were believed to be out on this lovers' lane as well for the reason that you would expect uh, two people would be on a lovers' lane uh, late at night, and so that was kind of floating around. But also there was all this intrigue about. Ralph and Eleanor and another woman in the church named, named Minnie Clark. And Ralph, there was, there was rumors that he had had his own fling with Eleanor, which he kind of denied and said, she had come on to me and I didn't like that. But there was other stories where the, the other version of the story was that Eleanor had rejected his come-ons. So clearly here's this guy who, who you know, is maybe also fooling around on his wife that maybe had some sort of romantic attachment to Eleanor. And then you have this woman named Minnie Clark, who's also 
you know, extremely devoted to to Saint John the Evangelist, and was seen as sort of like a rival in her devotion to Eleanor Mills. And there's no suggestion that she had any romantic attachments to to Reverend Hall, but she was a very important figure within the church. She taught Sunday school. There was five people who had keys to the church. Minnie and Eleanor were two of them. The day before the murders, Eleanor, Minnie, Francis, and Edward had gone on this picnic they take every year in which Francis and Eleanor wanted to kind of thank uh, Eleanor and Minnie for their for all the hard work they did at the church. So the four of them and uh, had gone out to Lake Hapakong in New Jersey and had this, this day at the lake. This was just the day before Eleanor and, and Edward disappeared. So Minnie and Ralph Gorsline, there's there's something there, and you know it's it's believed that they were onto what they knew what was going on, and that they knew about where Eleanor and Edward would kind of leave their love letters to one another, and that perhaps Gorslin had intercepted one of their lo- a love letter on the day of the murders and passed it to Minnie, who had gone to visit Francis that day in the afternoon. She went and had some refreshment with her um, and could have theoretically slipped a note to her. But basically, Minnie and Ralph Gorsliner kind of start to emerge as these suspected spies who knew what was going on and were kind of like Francis's eyes and ears and, and, and keeping her informed, keep, you know, on the tabs they were keeping on Edward and Eleanor and knew a lot more about the relationship than than they had let on. So both of them, they start to feature very prominently in in the press coverage because there's a lot of scrutiny on them in the investigation. And then as the grand jury comes to be called, they both do appear as witnesses, but it's really interesting that the authorities kind of gloss over the whole thing. You know, they're they're kind of trying, they're pulling teeth trying to get Ralph to admit that he knew about the affair and he's just playing playing dumb, you know, and had no idea what was going on. At one point, a prosecutor asks him something and he, and he says, oh, I don't, I don't go up to the church to spy on anyone. And, and, and one of the prosecutors says, well, who asked, who said anything about spying? And so it was kind of like, again, it's strained credulity that this guy was on the stand just saying, I had no idea about any of this. And then Minnie, she is, you know, for all of the interest that had started to encircle her, she's in and out in like five minutes and they barely ask her anything. So everyone is really shocked by that too. These figures that seem to have some knowledge, maybe had something to do with the catalyst that set this whole thing in motion. They kind of, at the grand jury, are a complete dud. So things kind of fizzle out. The grand jury offers no recommendations. Well, they pin it all, they pin it all, all their hopes are on Jane Gibson. I mean, that's what they have is this, this, this supposed eyewitness whose tale is very fantastical. So I think, you know, I think it it was hard in the end to rely on that because this woman is this eccentric. Her story is not very believable on its face. She's not necessarily the most credible witness, but nonetheless, she's the best they have. And it's just not enough to secure any indictments. Right, right. So this appears over now. And Francis relieved goes on an extended vacation as as you would do as a as a wealthy um uh, a wealthy woman who you know just had this traumatic experience she needs to take this extended sabbatical through europe with her best friend sally clarkson peters who's like this suffragist from manhattan who immediately comes down and never strays far from francis's side they sail they set sail uh a few months after the grand jury fizzles out and the whole thing is receded from the headlines and they they end up in the 
sail to Naples and they end up in, in Italy for months. And you make the point that Francis decides to go to the one country that doesn't have an extradition treaty. Yeah, that that comes up later on, you know, um, which we, we talk about. But it, it was true that at the time, yeah, there was no extradition treaty for murder to to the U.S. Apparently, from Italy. But in the meantime, you know, there is not really a focus anymore because the investigators are kind of like they've hit a dead end. They're still, you know, purportedly looking into this. They haven't totally given up. The press has pretty much stopped covering it because there's really nothing left to. There's no, there's no, nothing else to report on because there's no gossip leaking out of the, this this suspenseful investigation anymore. But behind the scenes, some things are happening, and this is where the story of the tabloids and the creation of the tabloids in America comes in. One of the newspapers that had been covering this very closely um, and breaking, you know, some stories about it along the way was the Daily News, which had was created in 1919. It was the first official tabloid newspaper in in America, and it kind of imported the form, this form that had taken hold in England and Europe and become very successful, imported it to an Amer- to America with, you know, this, uh, I think everyone knows what a tabloid newspaper looks like. It's compact. It's filled with photos. That's really the focus here. It's, it's, it's the first time there's a newspaper, which is very photographic. It's exciting. It's, it's, it's clearly a little bit more down market. It is, you know, something that is trying to make the news as entertaining as it is informative. So it's this new kind of groundbreaking genre. And it's also a kind of a, a mischievous genre. And there was a, the editor of the Daily News at the time of the Hall Mills investigation was a guy named named Phil Payne. Uh, and he, he becomes one of the main characters in my book. And you know, they had the, the news as with the as with all the newspapers had been all over this story. It was it was constantly on the front page throughout September, October, November 1922. So after the grand jury fizzles out, Phil Payne has this notion that, you know, this is not over yet. And let's take a closer look at Jim Mills. Separately, the the local authorities, you know, they're kind of like, where do we go from here? They had brought in the assistance of this detective from a neighboring county in New Jersey named Ellis Parker, who was, he, he would become famous because he would be called upon a few years later to solve the Lindbergh kidnappings. But even in his, in in his time in the early 1920s was was very well known for this impressive rate of solving big murder mysteries in New Jersey. He was kind of known as like the, the the America's Sherlock Holmes. And throughout the investigation, there was all these suggestions in the press, let's bring in Ellis Parker, surely he could solve this thing. So he and this tabloid editor, Phil Payne, and the Somerset County authorities, they're kind of like, where where can this go from here? And they they look at Jim Mills, who had kind of escaped scrutiny uh, the first time around. And I think you know the combination of well, this guy we should take a closer look at him. He's he's the he's the husband. He's, he's the spurned husband, and he clearly had the motive. And he's kind of this weird, dumb sort of guy. And sure, we should we should definitely take a closer look at this guy. And I think there was also this motivation of on the side of the, the tabloid newspaper that if they could bring this case back, it's good for business. So they all kind of align and start to take a closer look at, at Jim Mills, but none of this is playing. This is all, you know, stuff that I gleaned from, from the historical record. None of this was actually playing out publicly at the time. So in this amazing twist, they decide with the blessing of the County attorney to take advantage of his belief in ghosts and they hatch a plan to bring Eleanor back from the dead to confront him. 
Yeah, no, and, and it really, like I said, I mean, you can't you can't make this stuff up. But at the time, you know, for for context, there was this huge revival of spiritualism um, in early 1920s America. You know, part of this is just the, the state of society at the time coming out of World War One and 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 the Spanish flu pandemic. There was this this sense of wanting to to know what comes in the afterlife because so many people in the world had, had just died. And Arthur Conan Doyle, he was, he was a big proponent of spiritualism and he came through America and he did these, these speaking tours. He had a son who had died of, of the flu and he was a real evangelist for this. And all these people had, had really kind of adopted this, this, this belief in, in, in ghosts and spirits, including Eleanor Mills before she died, including their daughter, uh, Charlotte Mills, who who spoke to the press and said that you know I, I've I've been reading Conan Doyle, I think it's amazing, and I'm gonna figure I'm gonna convene with my mother and and communicate with my mother and figure out who killed her, and including this had rubbed off on Jim Jim Mills as well. So Phil Payne, he had a star crime reporter named Julia Hartman, who was the really the one that was on the ground in New Brunswick covering the crime for the Daily News and was really right there in the, in, the, in the pack with all the press. And she had one of the first interviews with the pig woman. She interviewed Pearl Bomber in her jail cell during that episode I mentioned where there was this kind of sideshow where they went back to them. And at this point, Phil Payne says, let's play to this guy's weaknesses. And he, he asks Hartman to kind of, you know, ingratiate herself with Jim and find any exploitable peculiarities. And she finds out that he believes in ghosts. So they cook up this wild plan to have a seance. And as you said, they, they went to the authorities and, and said, this is what we're going to do. And they said, I guess they had nothing to lose. Payne, he, he instructs this other uh, female tab- star tabloid reporter from the Daily News named Bernadine Sold, who later became this kind of famous socialite hostess in Los Angeles in later years. Um, she was a young female reporter at the, at the Daily News. The tabloids were a place where young female journalists could really shine and, and Phil Payne really championed them. So so Julia Hartman and Bernadine Solds were two of his stars there. And Bernadine Solds was kind of this bohemian looking character. So Phil Payne uh, decides that she will portray this fictional medium named Madame Astra. And Julia Hartman you know, has been really cultivating Jim Mills as a source, but really cultivating him for the purposes of, of trying to set him up. And they, they devise this plan to have a letter sent to him from, from this mystical Madame Astra, inviting him to her, her, her lair in Manhattan. And he shows the letter to Julia Hartman, who's obviously in on it. And he says, what do you, what do you think of this? And she says, oh, you know, I don't, I don't believe in that stuff, but if you do, I don't want to discourage you from going to visit her. So it's all fall, It's very easy. It all falls into place. Julia Hartman goes with Jim to the, the apartment of Bernadine Solds, aka Madame Astra, one night in February. This is again, I know this sounds so all hard to believe and ridiculous, but I have, you know, I've I've found multiple sources describing this this seance in the in the historical record. And, you know, the gist is that Bernadine, aka Madame, Madame Astra, had decked out her apartment with all this, you know, she had gone to this warehouse that sells disused Broadway props and bought, you know, all these kind of, you know, like a brass Buddha and this heavy black, this heavy, heavy velvet curtain that they hung up in the apartment. And according to, you know, the, the accounts I found of the seance, you know, in my research behind this curtain was a stenographer, Phil Payne, the editor of the daily news, Azariah Beekman, who was the Somerset County prosecutor 
George Totten, who was the lead detective, and this guy, Ellis Parker, this famous detective who, who had come in to help them. They're, they're supposedly hiding behind this curtain while, while Jim Mills comes in with Julia Hartman to this seance where they have incense wafting and a crystal ball they got. And they basically spend a few hours you know, trying to, to, to get Jim to confess that he killed his wife. And they uh, Madame Astra eventually, and she brings Eleanor's spirit into the room, and she's doing you know exactly what you'd expect. She's swaying, and you know wh- whatever you'd expect like a, a medium at this time to to act like. She's acting like it, and and doing apparently a good a good enough job that it seems not completely ridiculous to Jim, who's maybe not the the, the sharpest character to begin with. But nonetheless, for a guy who believes in this stuff. He does not flinch. You know, they she she accuses him directly in the seance of of killing his wife, but he he just he 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 will not budge. I didn't do this. Um, so the whole thing ends up being kind of a, of a dud. But it is this remarkable scene, you know, from that that's kind of unremembered uh, and and it's never reported on at the time in any of the press because they didn't get anything out of Jim. But it really is a, a scene that. I think is, is, is really rich. It's one of my favorite scenes in the book. And I think it really encapsulates, you know, tabloid media was really new at the time, but this is kind of the, the stunty, you know, the classic stunty journalism that you'd associate tabloids with even today. And it was, it was all right there in this, um, you know, in the midst of this, this famous murder case in the, in the roaring twenties America. Yeah. I've, I felt bad for Jim a little bit. <laughs> he he no, really he, got tossed Absolutely. Around. But he, I found a letter, you know, years later, um, that Bernadine Saltz, the the who had portrayed Madame Astra, was corresponding with uh, a guy who wrote one of the earlier, the, the, the kind of like the earliest first real book about the Hall, Hall Mills case in 1924. And he said that he had asked Jim about the séance and that Jim re- recalled it fondly. So, yes, you feel bad for the guy, but it se- it seems like in the end, he he didn't have hard feelings about it. Right. <laughs> So that becomes a dead end, and police eventually turn their attention back to the Stuarts, Francis and her brothers. Uh, so why? Was there a smoking gun, some pivotal piece of evidence that, that led them back to that family? So this case probably would have just completely gone away. Francis Hall and her brothers would have just lived out their days and never had to deal with this again. But But this tabloid editor, Phil Payne, he... He is basically single-handedly the person that brought this misery back upon them in 1926. Quick summary in the interim, he he got fired from the Daily News. He immediately gets scooped up by the Daily News' rival tabloid, which was created by William Randolph Hearst in 1924, effectively because the Daily News had become so successful and Hearst had kind of like written it off at first. And you know, as, as tabloids were becoming you know, starting to crop up in other American cities. He, he was resistant, but eventually the news becomes the most read newspaper in America. And William Randolph Hearst, this combative, famously combative, competitive media baron, the most powerful media figure in America at the time, arguably decides this will not, <laughs> I cannot let this rest. And he starts his own tabloid called the Daily Mirror, for, for which he hires Phil Payne after he gets canned from the news. So this is like really the start of the first tabloid war in, in, in America. Um, there's a third tabloid called the Evening Graphic that uh, was created by this kind of like wackadoo publishing tycoon of the day named Bernard McFadden. And we don't, I won't get too much into that other than to say that this tabloid also tried to go and revive the Hall Mills case at one point in the, in the intervening years. And they had a reporter going down to New Brunswick every day and interviewing the pig woman. And they their, their plan was to 
break the case back open and put it on the front page of their debut issue because they knew it would sell so much. It, it, would, it would boost their circulation immediately and make people want to pick up the paper. So this case, even though it had kind of just completely disappeared from the from the, the headlines, the tabloid press has not forgotten about it. And when when Phil Payne becomes the editor of the Mirror, um, you know he's he's immediately under pressure to grow circulation for for Hearst. And at some point, not long into his tenure, amidst all these other kind of stunty circulation driving stories he's assigning and and contests he's running, um, decides to take another crack at the case. And he he sends a uh, this all was done very secretively. He sends a reporter down to New Brunswick and. The guy kind of disappears from the newsroom and, and no one knows where he is because he's working secretly out of a hotel room uptown. And and he his his mission is to go and just dig up dirt. And 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 Payne initially had gone back into this thinking, like, let's get Jim Mills. You know, that was kind of like his unfinished business because they couldn't get him at the seance. And he's like, This guy's got to be guilty. So that's kind of where he goes, he goes into it with, with Jim in mind. The reporter starts coming back with all this other bits of intrigue that start pointing back towards Francis and her brothers. They start finding all finding out all this interesting, interesting details. For instance, they learn that there had been a cook present in the in the in the Hall mansion on the night that Edward disappeared. Why had this never been noted at the time in the investigation or in the press? They they find dirt on this private detective that Francis had hired uh, during the original investigation. They said that she said that they were he was hired basically to find out who killed her husband, but really it seemed like he had been retained by Francis's lawyers for kind of like oppo research and um, to kind of build up a case that would support her 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 innocence more than anything else. And the Daily Mirror, you know, kind of finds all this these details. This this investigator seems to have been bribing witnesses and or intimidating them. All these little kind of bits of circumstantial evidence start to seem fishy to them. But what they do discover at some point is they they find this guy named Arthur Real, uh, who comes forward with this, you know, another really outrageous sounding story, but which is nonetheless very explosive. And this guy claims that so he had married Louise Geist. He was kind of an armchair detective, un- unknown to Louise, who is the maid that was there present at the night of the murders. And he's he's like this armchair detective who who wants to solve this this famous case, and he meets Louise and starts dating her. They ended up getting married. She doesn't know that he's marrying her because you know he's he's investigating the Hall Mills case from a few years earlier. But nonetheless, they they are now man and wife, and the, the marriage kind of dissolves pretty quickly. And he comes forward in. 1926, as the mirror is reinvestigating this, claiming that Louise Geist had told, confessed to him that she she had accompanied them to the murder scene, uh, to the farm the night of the murders, and that she and the Hall's gardener at the time, gardener and chauffeur, were both there, and they you know knew what had happened, that they were and that they were essentially bribed into concealing their knowledge of the crime. And this guy is kind of like this bitter. He, he, he clearly is estranged from, from his wife at this, at this point and has every reason to maybe want to cause some trouble for her. But nonetheless, he has this story that um, is the first time it's, it's putting someone else, uh, in theory, at the crime scene, which is uh, Luis and, and, and Peter Tumulti, the gardener. So he files an, uh, an, an, an annulment petition to annul the, his marriage to Luis Geist, and he outlines all of this all of these this, this, these claims against her 
in the document, which the mirror is able to obtain and then quickly have it disappear from the public record so no other reporters can get their hands on it. So that's kind of like the smoking gun they have. And they 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 take this dossier they've spent eight months compiling and they go before they publish anything, they go to the governor of New, New Jersey and the New Jersey attorney general and they lay it all out and basically get them to reopen the investigation. Um, so they they decide to the governor decides to reopen the case and the mirror publishes this explosive story in July of 1926 that just reignites the media circus of four years earlier and puts the thing back into the into the bloodstream of, of the American press. And also they finally try to identify a fingerprint that they found on that calling card at the scene of the crime, right? Yeah, and that was a bit of they they withheld that in their initial report um, at the request of the New Jersey authorities. And there's this other kind of nuance that comes into play here where Phil Payne, he lived in Hudson County, New Jersey, even though he was the editor of, of these powerful New York tabloids. He always stayed in New Jersey. Hudson County is like the seat of the powerful Democratic Party machine of the time. The, the governor of, of New Jersey at the time was, was, a, was, a, was a big Democrat. So there's this kind of alliance between the Daily Mirror and the Democratic Party machine in New Jersey. There's kind of an agreement that Payne tips him off with this good stuff. They promise Payne that they'll give him, as they start investigating the case, they'll give him all the scoops first. And their request is to not divulge the finger this 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 fingerprint evidence right away, which he agrees to. But it comes out that the calling card that we talked about earlier that was found at, at the crime scene near the Reverend's foot, it had disappeared. The mirror found it. They they found it in possession of this, this, this fingerprint expert who had been with the Newark Police Department who had assisted in the investigation. He somehow, he's the one that still had this, this calling card. And he, he eventually turns it over to Phil Payne and the mirror and they do an analysis of this and they find a fingerprint on the card that bears some very key similarities to the fingerprint of Willie Stevens, Francis's oddball brother. We will return momentarily. We are back once more. So it is enough to get an indictment, right? It's enough to get to get they, they're they're indicted without there's no question this time they're indicted very quickly and now Francis her two brothers they're all indicted for murder uh, on on a charge of murder. So she and her two brothers were to be tried at the same time, right? Correct. And the trial w- was quite a circus. A- among the more interesting courtroom moments was the attempt to get Jane Gibson whose health had, had been declining in recent months, into court to testify. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that once the, once the New Jersey authorities take over, they actually don't really look at, you know, the whole thing that reignited the, the case was this, this confession by this, the estranged husband of Luis Geist who came forward with this, this story about how, you know, Luis had confessed to knowing about the whole thing. All that kind of just goes, they kind of put that aside. And, and interestingly, they focus again on uh, Jane Gibson. Uh, the new there's a special prosecutor brought in named Alexander Simpson, also a prominent member of, of the Democratic Party machine in New Jersey, and he really believes Jane Gibson's story, and she immediately becomes a factor again 
in the investigation. At the same time, Simpson, he starts to kind of break down Henry Stevens' alibi. This is how Henry ends up getting arrested because he goes and interviews these people that were supposedly fishing on the beach with him. And it comes out that, well, I can't remember if it was definitely September 14th or not. And so, so all this is going on, but you know, it really, it comes down to Gibson again and, and her, her supposed eyewitness testimony. And on the first day of the trial, you know, she, she emerges and this old woman is there and starts like confronting her. It turns out to be Jane Gibson's elderly mother. Um, all this stuff had come out about James Gibson's past, like her, the story she told about this, this, her upbringing and, and this, this fantastic story, uh, life story she had, where she had been a, a rider in the circus and, and all this really like outrageous stuff. The press investigate this and, and they poke all this hole, all these holes in it. And, it. and she has this, you know, really kind of checkered past. She was maybe married to this, this other guy and, her, her whole story, her whole backstory that she had told just completely doesn't add up. So then you have her mother basically showing up in court and, and calling her daughter a liar to her face. And she collapses and is brought to a hospital in, in Jersey City. And it turns out she's suffering from a blood infection, but also it appears she has cancer and she's she's completely just, just bedridden in this hospital. And there's a question of whether or not she'll be able to, to make it to testify. There's a question at first if she'll even live long enough to testify because it seemed like she was she was practically on her deathbed. But eventually this prosecutor, Alexander Simpson, he is so invested in her testimony, he he really makes, um, he really pushes the doctors uh, at the hospital to the limit and says she has to finally arrive in court. We need her there. Jane Gibson agrees. She 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 signs you know a waiver saying that she understands the risk of being transported from uh, Jersey City to Somerville, which you know at the time in an in a hospital ambulance was a quite you know slow uh, journey. But there is this there is this procession where where Jane Gibson boards a hospital uh, uh, an ambulance early one morning. Um, she's trailed by several cars of members of the press. It's basically like almost like a parade all the way to Somerville. There's people in the streets and they, they're watching this and they're, they're cheering for her as she goes by. And she is, you know, she finally arrives after something like four hours in, in Somerville at the Somerset County Courthouse. And she is wheeled into the courtroom on this stretcher. And that is where she testifies from this, from this makeshift hospital bed with a doctor and a nurse at her side, you know, taking her pulse every so often and dabbing cream on her lips and fluffing her pillows. So it was a really um, dramatic, dramatic scene when, when she showed up. One of the interesting revelations from the trial, a doctor who had done a third autopsy testified that Eleanor's windpipe had been completely removed from her throat. Yeah. And the, you know, as I said before, like the, the forensics were just completely, you know, it, it was a forensic travesty, even by 1922 standards. Um, there hadn't even been an original autopsy to begin with. I mean, they were they were buried without a proper autopsy. There was kind of this cursory morgue report where uh, the, 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 the county coroner at the time noted there was, you know, a gash to her neck. But in fact, from a second autopsy in 1922, and certainly from the th- a third autopsy in 1926, where the bodies are exhumed a second time, I mean, you realize that sh- her neck was, it was severed to such an extent that, it, it, you know, her head was almost cut off. And during this third autopsy, it is revealed that, you know, her windpipe and vocal cords were missing. And this is entered into, into testimony. And the prosecutor, Alexander Simpson, he, he says, you know, that, that those would be the organs of singing would they not? So, so again, this goes back to this, this theory that there was some 
crime of passion and someone was really symbolically mutilating in Eleanor in a way to, you know, even in death, take away, you know, the, this talent that defined her in life. Right. So the star witnesses were Willie, Henry, and Francis, the siblings, and they all did better on the stand than expected, um, especially Willie, who was accused, as, as you've said, of, of being slow, gullible, and he does surprisingly well, which stymies the prosecution. Yeah, Willie was always the comic relief in, in, this, in this whole thing, and the, the newspapers you know, they would, they would refer to him in these really, you know, horrible ways that things like the subnormal intelligence of of Willie Stevens. I mean, I I think there wasn't really a vocabulary for this at the time, but it's, 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 it's reasonable to assume that, that Willie might've been somewhere on the, on the autism spectrum or, you know, maybe some form of Asperger's or, or, or something like that. But he was, you know, at the time, he was just seen as this bumbling idiot, this kind of like this this town wackadoo, you know, which which was um, something that I think it really hurt him. He, he was very sensitive about that. And he really wanted to do good in this testimony. And it gets off to a rocky start because they ask him his age and he says he's 44. He says he's, he's, he's gives he gives the wrong age at first and he has to be corrected. And I think everyone, especially you know, the reporters covering the trial of which there were Many. I mean, there was like 300 reporters who came to summer to Somerville for this trial, and something like 130 would be in the courtroom every day in the seats they had allocated for them. They're all expecting Willie's testimony to be this kind of like comical disaster, but he's actually very competent, very measured, very polite. This Alexander Simpson, the prosecutor, he was really hostile with with a lot of the witnesses, but with with Henry, with with, Will, with Willie, I'm sorry, he he treats him much more. Kind of like with with kid gloves, I, and that must have been a tactic in some way. But their their testimony, the, the banter between them was was kind of very respectful from the beginning. But Henry, you know, really just stays the course, and you know does not stray from his alibi uh, and describing in, in detail you know this, this this walk that he and Francis took to the church to look for Edward. And uh, the, the prosecutor is trying to he makes him tell this over and over and over again. And at some point, the defense attorneys are like, why, why are you making, it seems like you're trying to, what, what are you getting at here? And why are you making him tell the story over and over? And he, he, the prosecutor suggests that he's trying to determine if this is something that maybe Willie could have learned by rote, you know, like it was almost like he remembered it too specifically. And isn't that a little, isn't that a little odd? And Willie turns to the judge and says, you know, your honor, I'm sorry to say, the only thing I can say is that, you know, I don't find it you know, at all odd. And I, 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 no one, no one coached me. And this is, I'm just telling the, recollecting the events of that evening as best I can remember them. So he, he comes away as like the star of the trial and the, the, the even the, the Daily Mirror, which was practically on the prosecution's payroll, you know, their front page the next day was Willie is a good witness in big, bold letters across the front page. So that was definitely a big surprise. Oh yeah. Yeah. The murder weapon was never found. Correct. There was no gun. Willie did own a, a gun of the same caliber uh, as the murder weapon, but it, like the, the the firing pin had been fired filed off years ago, probably because Willie's siblings didn't trust him with with a gun. No knife was ever recovered. There, there's no murder weapon in this investigation. They just they they know what the gun is based on the bullets casings that were found at the scene, but they have never actually found the weapon itself. So the verdict comes in not guilty, and the case eventually goes cold. Is it still a cold case now? Officially still, yeah. There, there, was, there was an acquittal um, because, again, I think that 
the prosecution really hinged on Jane Gibson's testimony being compelling enough to convince you know, these, these 12 jurors uh, that, it, that it was true. And in the end, you know, she was just not, I think, a credible enough witness. And they really poked apart that they really tore her apart on, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the stand, as it were, because she was in her, as I said, testifying from a hospital bed. So they, they, they basically get off. And, you know, to this day, there has not been an official resolution to the case, although there was one twist left in, in the story, which, which I also recall in the book that that comes up many years later. So what do you think happened? Uh, do you believe you know who murdered Eleanor and Edward? Well, based on this this twist that I referenced, which I don't want to give, up, give away too much of the ending of the story, um, but years later in 1969, a, a new witness emerges and has this, this incredible story um, that is corroborated, details of which are corroborated to some extent that are pointing the finger back at, at Willie Stevens and, and the Hall clan. And it, it's really a fact, there's a, there's a reinvestigation in 1970 of, of the case for a third, a third time based on this new accusation that comes forth that Willie had essentially plotted the whole thing because, you know, the Reverend was in control of his finances, you know, his, this, this little allowance he got just, you know, he was, he's very bitter about it. And he, he just hated Reverend Hall. And the story comes out, you know, suggesting that the Hall family had essentially, or some members of the family, uh, the Hall Stevens clan had basically ordered a hit on Edward Hall. And, you know, again, the last chapter of the book kind of, you know, goes into a, a pretty suspenseful reconstruction of this. Uh, and I hope people will, will want to buy the book after this and, and read that. But I came away thinking that, I don't know if I believe this, this, this final story that emerged, but it seemed to me that throughout this whole thing, there is so much smoke around Francis and her brothers that, you know, and, and, and at, at every point, both in 1922 and 1926, you know, between different witnesses and different um, little bits of evidence that, that came out about the situation, uh, you know, of, of this family at the time, it just seems like there's too much smoke for there to have been no fire. And it, it just can't, I feel like that it can't be that, everyone who came out with some story that would point towards the guilt of Francis or her family members, it was either lying or mistaken or just like press hungry. I mean, there was just, there was more, there were more chips stacked against Francis and her brothers than anyone else in, in, in the whole case. And I think that, you know, amongst scholars of this case, I do think that's kind of the conventional wisdom that uh, I think most people believe that the, that this, this wealthy and well-conducted family had to have something to do with, with, with what happened. There are certainly other people who, who, who deviate uh, from that conclusion, but I, I, I do believe as best as I can, that, you know, there was, had to be something with, 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 with the Hall Stevens clan. And it's not completely implausible that, you know, even if you can't bring yourself to believe that this woman of the Victorian age who, was completely averse to scandal would have like willingly gotten herself involved in the worst of all scandals, which is a, a, a sex and murder scandal. It's not impossible to believe that one of her brothers or another family member or someone could have tried to bring about some sort of end to this scandalous affair. And maybe things got out of hand or out of control, but there's, but there's so many things that also just are hard to, to reconcile, you know, I mean, if it was a hit, why was her, 
throat cut in this way with a, the weird staging of the bodies. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's so many variables, I think, that make it hard to fully believe any one conclusion. It, it really is such a bizarre and, and puzzling case. But also to, to me, that's what really, um, I think in the end, draws me to this because there's something about not knowing and not having certainty that I think makes mysteries like this really endure. You know, this is the same, this is why we're still fascinated with, with Jack the Ripper all these years later, because, you know, there's this, there's this yearning to know and not being able to know, I think, you know, is, is, is very powerful in itself. So I don't have a firm conclusion to, to offer your, your listeners, but I do think that that's one of the appealing things about, about this case is that, is that we don't know. Um, and probably never will. Uh, <laughs> who knows what, what, who knows what evidence may lurk somewhere, but, you know, certainly it seems like I think that in terms of actually forensic, forensically investigating this case or, or finding anyone who is living today that's related to some, I mean, there's there's no heirs here. There's no descendants. None of these, none of the principals uh, had a family line that continued. So there's not some like great, great grandchild that has, you know, a diary sitting in a trunk somewhere where we're going to ever have a satisfying conclusion to this, I think. But again, I think that to me is, 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 is very intriguing. Right. So, your book is officially out on September 13th. It should be today, if I plan this correctly. Where can listeners learn more about you? Where can they get it? You know, you can find, if you just Google Harper Collins, uh, which is my publisher and my name, Joe Pompeo, and the name of the book, that'll take you to the publisher's page, which will have all the links of your preferred booksellers, whether it's Amazon or Bookshop or um, Barnes & Noble, I mean, really, anywhere you, you, you can access the book, I would love for you to, to, to buy it there at your local bookshop, if that's, if that's preferable. You can follow me on, on, on Twitter, at uh, Joe Pompeo, just my name. And also, I'll, I'll mention, I, I have a Substack newsletter now where I, I just kind of started it to offer up some bonus content from the book and uh, keep people up to date on you know my uh, events and media appearances. But also, I'm trying to make it kind of a Clearinghouse for the latest on you know historical true crime and and historical uh, juicy narrative history releases that are coming out in, in audio and um uh and and print. So if you're looking for some some good recommendations that are not my book uh, in that, I'd love for you to sign up for my newsletter. That's joepompeo.substack.com. I'm definitely going to sign up for that as well. I'm very interested in receiving that information from you. Well, thank you so much for doing this spending so much time with us today. And I hope it wasn't too much time. Like you said, it's such a complex case and it's hard, it's hard to um, capture, boil it all down to, uh, you know, one, one podcast. So I hope I haven't been too um, convoluted in, in my, in my my recounting of of the story, but um, I appreciate you taking the time. Again, I have been speaking to Joe Pompeo. His book is called Blood and Ink the scandalous jazz age double murder that hooked America on true crime. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.